Our scripture this morning comes from Romans 15:1 through 7. We who are strong have an obligation to bear with the failings of the weak and not to please ourselves. Let each of us please his neighbor for his good to build him up. For Christ did not please himself, but as it is written, the reproaches of those who reproached you fell on me. For whatever was written in the former days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the scriptures we might have hope. May the God of endurance and encouragement grant you to live in such harmony with one another, in accord with Christ Jesus, that together you may with one voice glorify the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Therefore, welcome one another as Christ has welcomed you to the glory of God. The word of the Lord. You may be seated. My name is Vincent Hoppe. I'm the pastor here at Grace and Peace. If you have any questions, I'd love to meet you and answer your questions, especially if you're just trying to figure out what it is you believe and uh, different things like that. And so that would be a pleasure. One of the things that we're doing in these past few weeks is it's now the fifth week of us unpacking uh, politics. Why are we talking about politics? Because everyone else, everyone else in the world is talking about politics right now. And so you are being formed and shaped in some manner. And so for the past four weeks, our hope has been to tune your heart through worship and the Word toward what it was designed to be, for what it was to love most. We desire to help you reprioritize your identity. And I've warned you that uh, if you are more comfortable with a political party, over those with whom you worship, you might have a political idol. I have warned about political tribalism, how it shapes you to love party and hate neighbor. Whereas the Christian life is for you to love God and love neighbor. What we have done now, what we have seen over and over again, whether it be on social media or even in our own words, we use things like straw man arguments, which is to prop up the argument of maybe our opponent that is so weak that uh, anybody can knock it down. And so we put those things on social media against our political enemies. We do things like ad hominems, which is an attack against the character and the person. Well, if that person wasn't such a bad sinner, then their policies would be okay, some people say. And then we also have different arguments that are like genetic fallacies. He uses words that sound like Marxism. Therefore, he's a Marxist. No, you just called it names. You didn't do anything to the argument. And these are cheap, easy ways for us to try to win arguments. They look good rhetorically, but they have very little substance. And so what we're trying to do, though, is show that this disdain for neighbor, this looking down your nose, means that you are probably aligned with a political party more than you are with the kingdom of God. If you are willing to throw your brother or sister in Christ under the bus with all your arguments, what it's probably showing is that you have an allegiance in your heart over Christ. And that's dangerous. If we sit, spend our time preserving our position or our morals uh, in our society by use of power, money, reputation, if we're fighting the culture war, one, we're just losing 
and we're using the weapons of the world. This is confusing the kingdom of God with the kingdom of man. What am I trying to say? What am I getting? What I'm saying is this. What happens today, and what we confess, and what we profess today on Sunday, is going to be, it matters much more than what will happen on Tuesday. You may give either party your vote, but do not give them your worship. Let me tell you, it doesn't matter nearly as much who is sitting at the White House than who is seated at the right hand of God the Father Almighty and who sits on the throne of your heart. And that's what we've been pushing these four weeks. Because we need to remember that there is a kingdom greater and more superior, one that doesn't align with blue or red, but with the blood of the cross. It is not a donkey nor an elephant that is going to save us, but only the Lamb that has saved us. You see, the eternal reign of Jesus over His kingdom now and not yet surpasses any transitory reign of any president or political party. And knowing that, realizing that you are a citizen of that kingdom, you're a child of that God, that is going to enable you to not be too elated whenever someone is actually elected president because apparently, like, every prognostic is like, we're not going to know. And I'm like, come on, man. 2020 is already terrible. You want to prolong the election? For real? Come on. Anyway, so, you know, you're not going to get too elated, nor you're going to be on in too much despair on Tuesday. Because you believe and you know in your heart that in the end, you have a truer hope than who's in office. See, as a senior in high school, though, I had to prepare for an essay for my AP biology exam. And the topic was the properties of water molecules. And one of the properties of a water molecule is that it is kind of cooler. On one end, it has a positive end, and on the other end, it has a negative pole, therefore enabling things like adhesion and cohesion, creating surface tension. So, when you are a young man and you want to impress the ladies at the pool, you know for a fact, because of the polarization of water, that when you jump from the 15-foot diving board and you do that belly flop, it's going to hurt a little. Okay? And you know this because by nature, water is polar. And by our fallen nature, humans are, fa- are polar as well. It has enabled groups to grow or to fall. It has enabled military men and women to go through the ritual of basic training and come together as a cohesive group. Think about your sports. If you've been in uh, sports before, one of the dreaded things in every sport, and I used to love it as a coach, was two days. Oh, two days. Everyone who's ever gone through two days is like, I hate you, even. But you became more of a team during two days at that moment when you were pushed to the brink. And so that's important. You see, you're broken down and you're rebuilt to be a cohesive unit. And then the entire act of the ritual is playing on the fact that at your heart, you are polar. You're drawn to some people, and you're also repelled or repulsed by other types of people. 
every heart is like this. Since the fall, the default of the human heart has been polarized against God and against neighbor. Only the regenerating work of God can reset the polarization. Only by the regenerating work and intervention of the Lord God and His Spirit can the polarization be switched in our heart. Uh, let me put it this way. The politicization of COVID-19 did not come about, or did not create polarization. Rather, the polarization that was already in our heart enabled the politicization of COVID-19. It was already there. You do not have to make us politically polar. It is automatically there. We will pull, we, that is just the way we are. That's the default mode of the heart. And since Genesis 3, every heart has been polarized. It is programmed against God and turned towards self-interest. It makes us gravitate toward those who are like us or are going to affirm us or make us feel good about ourselves. And then it's going to allow us to look at other people and say, ah, and see what's wrong with those people is they're toxic. You'll just throw a name on them instead of actually having a better argument. You see, we, we hang out with a group exclusively and we fear the other people who are not like us. We're afraid of their discussions, what they might say about us, their arguments. And our desire, though, in this world, we, like, we keep on in the same, like, hey, how in the world can we have diversity and unity? We really want diversity and unity. But the default mode of our heart pushes against that. Think about it. Today, we want college kids to have safe places in college. Okay? We want to coddle their minds. We don't want them to face uh, two different, you know, voices that are too different. And so we do this in school. We make sure that the other side isn't talked about too much because it might actually hurt our feelings or hurt someone's feelings. See, where colleges were designed to be places that you would have pluralistic discussions about people's different views. But nowadays, we segregate people into particular dorms so that it would be safe for them. For social media, we mute our weird uncle and his conspiracy theories because we don't want what he's saying and the little bits of truth somewhere in between his weird alien view is maybe a little bit of truth that presses against my view. And so I'm polarized against him. He's on the other side, and so I just mute him. So what we do is we curate this social media world which just becomes an echo chamber of self-affirmation, allowing me to build up my self-righteousness in my group, continually feeling like I am better than everybody else. The human heart loves the echo chamber because it is polarized. Churches understand this too. In the 80s and 90s, there was something called the homogenous growth principle. Meaning, if you want to have a big church and you want to reach people, what you would do is you would cater to the consumeristic uh, bend of a group, playing on their polarization. It is easy to say, oh, this is our music against their music. And so what they did was they played on this. You could have your radio music. It could look and feel like a rock concert. But you also kept the same type of people. 
people from the same socioeconomic background, people who are uh, generally their experiences culturally and racially are the same, and you put them in the same place. What Paul is saying, though, when he's pushing back here, is he is encouraging the unity and diversity. He would look at our homogenous growth churches now and probably say, what have you done? This is not the strong for the sake of the weak, giving up their freedom because of love. He would push back. He would be appalled because we have given in to the polarization of the heart in our political world. We could find, you know, red churches over here, blue churches over there. And if we don't want to have these weak, strong differences, the deficiencies in faith kind of pushing up against us, or anything like that, what we want to do is we would go to a church that is nothing but another echo chamber to reaffirm my views about Christianity. I will tell you this. If you do not want to be offended at church, do not come to grace and peace. I will offend you. I promise. If it isn't just because of the Word of God, I will offend you because of my sin. True. Okay? But there are some churches that tend to be purple like this. How do I know we're a purple church? Well, yesterday I did reverse trick-or-treating, and I saw some political signs. And I'm all like, I know you two vote differently, and you take the Lord's Supper one after the other. Praise God. It was like a worshipful experience seeing a political sign in front of a house. It was wild. It was good. And so, instead of having the safety of our thinking, Paul is speaking into these situations where there's potential disagreements that may cause disunity amongst the people. For example, one area he addresses in chapter 13 talks about submission to rulers. In our, in our verses, he it, his concluding remarks on disagreements between those who are strong and those who are weak, referring to eating uh, only vegetables, so there are some vegetarians, he refers them to, basically, uh, he refers to them as weak. I, I am not saying anything about your diet right now. You may be a vegetarian, that is totally cool, and I'm not saying anything about your spiritual state. I'm just saying Paul said something about that. Anyway, so, but then... And he also talks about some people regarding other days as more holy than others. That there's a preference for particular days. And he doesn't say that these are moral issues, though. But he ta- talks about them in terms of strong and weak. That there are some people who have, maybe they have been discipled, they have spent more time in the Word, and what they're realizing that behind any of this is not like um, anything uh, better or less than. But you can have a free conscience whenever you partake or you did or you don't partake. And so some people's consciences were injured if you were to eat any meat. And so this brings up a reference to what Paul would talk about in First Corinthians 10, where he's talking about people who eat meat sacrificed to idols. They know that there are no idols behind it. And so he's not talking about a moral issue here necessarily. He's talking about differences in views, but some of them are, have a kind of a more of a, uh, a conscience that could be more easily injured, is what he's talking about. It isn't moral, because 
We know Paul talks about moral issues, but when he does, and he says that they're out of step in accord with the gospel, he's talking about things like racism or sexual immorality. He says, uh, toss that sinner out, is what he says. And so we know Paul most certainly talks about those things. So, not talking about that. And he means that so long as a person is fully convinced in their own mind and doing it to the glory of God, don't make a big deal about it. That there can be freedom of conscience between the strong and the weak. And so there are, though, blatant sin issues. And there are certain debates that are going on right now. So don't hear what I'm not saying. I don't think you can have a nuanced view concerning things like abortion or unjust war. Okay? Some of these things are big moral issues, but when we're talking about the rate at which people should be taxed or uh, infrastructure questions, maybe, just maybe, there's a little freedom for diversity of thought within our churches. I think that might be important. You see, the only sin that is in view to Paul at this time is the purposeful use of freedom to injure your neighbor's conscience. To use your freedom as a veil for evil. So he addresses this. Jesus, who is the truly free one, allows himself to those who be bound to make us truly free. In our politically charged environment, your brothers and sisters in Christ may be fully convinced about their vote, but because their vote isn't ultimate and Christ's election of them is, then you can be free to love them. Because the polarization of your heart has been reversed, because God has loved you while you were a sinner, an enemy of God, you can reflect His image by welcoming those who don't look like you, think like you, or vote like you, or have the same opinions as you do. So what's the main point, Vince? My main point is this. Paul teaches us that love surpasses freedom. Therefore, welcome one another. And it's much easier said than done in our world, in our hearts. Why? Because we are polarized from beginning. We are turned inward in ourselves. And everything reinforces the polarization in our hearts in this world. The default mode is poor polarization. So we must look at the default way of the world and the new way of God. The default way of the world and the new way of God. The default way of the world. Let me put it this way. Because of polarization, it is much easier to leave it's much easier to leave the church today. You know that? People will check out because of politics. And it, it's easy. You just find someone who agrees with you. And then you say, ah, that church didn't really agree to my views. And so you continually go on a world of church shopping. It would be easy for the strong to get together, though, also, and leave those who are weak behind, if they could start a new church. And the same for the weak. The weak could get together and decide, you know what, those crazy guys over there, they do whatever they want, 
they're unbelievable, we can leave them. And so they bind together. And what you've done is polarization allows you to be attracted to the same people that have the same views you do, and you can have a different church. You know, there could be a church, maybe, that you could find that will never say anything uncomfortable, uncomfortably to the political, uh, politically to those on the left or to the right. There could be churches where there's no mention of the outside world at all. You could be kind of living in your whole home bubble, and it could be really nice there. But to find people who disagree and willing to stick together in unity, well, there might be something there. And in fact, Paul says that your willingness to stick together might actually prove that God is in your midst. Why? Because the kingdom of God and his rule and reign, that Jesus Christ as Lord, would be superior to any political affiliation, enabling you to have unity above whatever way you vote. A church with diversity of views and opinions on things not ultimate looks more like the kingdom of God. If everyone in the church agreed on everything, it's either a cult, get out now, or a country club, where no one really wants to offend you and everyone wants to cater to to your needs and make sure you're comfortable. The goal of the Word of God is not to make you comfortable. Have you ever been comfortable on the table when you're prepared for surgery? Uh Uh-uh. Those weird gowns, you know, some masked person with a knife, that, that ain't comfortable. You know, that ain't comfortable. I, I can imagine someone who had maybe had some bad surgery looking around everyone masked, you're like, oh, that person ain't good. You know, just looking at y'all. Um, anyway, so it's not comfortable. If you want to be comfortable, do not read the Bible. Will it comfort you whenever you're distressed? Absolutely. Will it ever distress you when you are comfortable? You had better believe it. And Paul then pushes to stress them a little bit. He says, We who are strong are to bear or carry the weak. Not, not um, pleasing ourselves, but pleasing them. Why? Because Christ did not please himself. And at that moment, everybody's all like, well, I don't think I suffered nearly as much as Christ. And so you and I are saying, well, maybe I could go a little further in welcoming the political other. Maybe I can go a little further in being kinder to my weird roommate. Maybe I could welcome them. You see, to insist on everyone in the church agreeing with your opinion or political position is to make yourself judge and ruler of the kingdom. And uh, Romans 14, 13, Paul says, Let us not pass judgment on one another. Rather, decide not to put a stumbling block or a hindrance in the way. Let us pursue what makes for peace and for mutual upbuilding. Do not, for the sake of food, destroy the work of God. It means this. Do not make any political litmus test in order to decide the orthodoxy of your neighbor. Let's put it another way. Do not, for the sake of political party, destroy the work of God by excluding the political other. Do not, for the sake of vice news, destroy the work of God by hating conservatives. 
Do not, for the sake of Fox News, destroy the work of God by hating progressives. Do not, for the sake of political tribalism, destroy the work of God by canonizing your candidate. Do not, for the sake of self-righteousness, destroy the work of God by condemning your brother. What it means is strive for unity. Push against the polarization and the instincts of your heart by remembering the one who repolarized your heart. Reverse the polarity. And that is the Lord Jesus Christ. The default way of the world is to leave and please yourself. Someone might contend that these little differences and things are really big, and you start to exaggerate the difference. The strong could have done that with the weak or the reverse. It starts with small criticism, it then grows deep down into the roots of bitterness until it fruits and flowers into oppression. You start to tell those you, who you disagree with, you start to you start to tell other people, like, hey, did you hear what so-and-so believes? Can you believe that? But what you're doing is you are just reaffirming yourself and you're standing in your own little political tribe at the expense of someone else. You're sowing disunity. And see, from that, you begin to commit what Timothy Keller calls the slippery slope of the heart. You start to other people. And then, you believe yourself to be superior. And it's usually a self-righteous superiority, not in, in, and you believe you've controlled it. And then, you characterize and dehumanize the other. And then you will oppress them, either actively or passively. And how can you do this? It's because you have an ignorance of the scriptures, it says. It says here, on verse 4, that whatever was written in the days was written for our instruction, that through endurance and through the encouragement of the Scriptures, we must have hope, a hope that surpasses anything that we see, in order that we may have unity, even though some may vote Democrat, some may vote Republican, someone might actually vote Solidarity Party, someone might be really crazy and vote Green Party or whatever. But you are to hang out together. And be brothers and sisters first because you have a greater hope than what happens on November 3rd. You see, what will happen is, is you, instead of endurance and encouragement, you'll have fatigue and despair at this moment with your brothers and sisters. What you'll be finding in your heart is that you have a different God, the God of political tribalism, and they'll cause you to lose patience and quit on your brothers and sisters, choosing comfort over unity, tribalism over grace. You will either force out or walk out on your brother and sister in Christ because of the polarization of your heart. And so what is the new way of God? What happens whenever you trust Jesus as Lord and King of your life? You confess that you are not Lord and King. You ain't got it together. And your righteousness no matter how hard fought, no matter how moral, isn't good enough. You confess that you've lived in rebellion and the default mode of your heart needs to be changed. You need a reverse polarity in your heart. 
And the only way we can see the diversity and unity that society hopes for is not by getting everyone to think alike, but to prioritize a new reality, a reality where my judges don't make me to be king, but that the one judgment that really matters, the judgment of Jesus, the true king for me, makes me a citizen of a new kingdom and a child of a new family. And that hope and that superiority is what drives and pushes us to be different. It is a new way that we feast and feed and are encouraged on the God who is totally other, who is the true insider, but came and died like an outsider so that we could be insiders in Christ. That the one who is a true somebody came and died like a nobody, so that you could be just somebody. See, therefore, you could be encouraged by the scriptures to be the people who carry. It doesn't just say bear with. You know, bear, that's a bad translation. See, bear seems like a passive. Oh, poor you. Here you go. Bear with the burdens of the weak because you are strong. No, it's actually active in its writing, and it says means to carry or to lift up. If you have ever been a mother or a father who has gotten a child into adulthood, you know exactly what it means to carry someone there and how active it is to disciple that child. Let me put it another way. Have you ever been on a sports team? where maybe you were better than the other person. You know what it is like to carry your team on your back. Let me put it another way. Maybe you were in drama, and you had some of those people who couldn't for the life of them break out of the monotone like voice that they had, and there was no dynamic in their voice, and somehow you have got to carry their inability with you through it. And so you act your heart out because you're stronger, and you carry them along. And this is active. You do it on purpose. You choose to love your neighbor, even though you have the freedom to say, what's wrong with you? You decide for the sake of unity and love to give up your freedom. You carry and please your neighbor for their good. And it says you have the obligation. That's what you're to do. But what is constraining? What is the obligation? It is not you're you're obligated to do this in order that you may earn, you know, brownie points with God so that in the end that he might give you a sweet Ferrari or something like that or he'll let you into his heaven. No, rather the Christian has been led into heaven by the work of Jesus Christ and therefore what is constraining you? It is a heart constrained by love according to uh, 1 Corinthians 5 is where, where it says that. We are constrained by love to give up our freedom, to bear with the weaknesses of our neighbors. And so we do not please ourselves. We carry our cross. We disadvantage ourselves. We actively disadvantage ourselves for the advantage of our neighbor. 
You actively give up rights and privileges for love. If you've ever been in love, you know that you've been constrained in some way and you give up freedoms for that relationship. Or put it another way, if someone is not willing to give up their freedom in a relationship, they ain't love. That's narcissism. Watch out. Paul uses the example of Jesus to show the distance. Look what Jesus did. If you need strength and encouragement for unity, look at what Jesus did. And that is the power and the hope that drives you forward. Teacher Thomas was a young 17-year-old girl in Ann Arbor, Michigan. She was a black girl. And in coming to our town, there was the KKK who was coming to rally for white superiority. Keisha joins the counter-protest. Just a young person. When a young man, so right there's a middle-aged man, starts walking through the crowd of counter-protesters wearing a leather jacket with a Confederate flag on the back, a swastika tattooed to his neck. The complete and political other. He gets tripped, falls down, and the crowd of counter-protesters then start to beat him. Why? Because they're polarized against each other. And so they start to beat him. And Keisha Thomas, because of the reverse polarization of her heart, does something so counter-cultural, so instinctually other, that it has made news for years. She throws herself and her black body on top of a white man who believes in white superiority to cover him up as the crowd continues to beat him. And she takes the blows for him. And she starts to scream out, you cannot beat goodness into him. The polarity of our hearts are not changed by it being beat into us, but it is only by being radically changed by the gospel in the person of Jesus Christ. And she says, why did she do it? Because my God was beaten for me. Only when we meditate and see what Jesus Christ has done for us, that he lived the life we should have lived, died the death we should have died, and we get that fixated at our hearts, and that causes us to sing. And when I get that, that's when it changes. You see, the way of God and the way to actually have the reverse polarization, the enablement to actually be encouraged and to continue to love your political neighbor in this moment is the way of the cross. 
Loving your political neighbor is best done by bearing your cross to welcome and please your neighbor, because Jesus was the one who was cast out by his neighbor so that we could be welcomed. Jesus ate with those who would betray him, even Judas who would sell him. Jesus asked for his executioner's forgiveness, saying, They know not what they do. You see, he died at the hands of his political enemies to bring in a new kingdom beyond any political imagination so that here we can reflect by being people of different political parties and affiliations and leanings. By being united, we can reflect God's diversity and the wideness of his love out into the world, we reflect the polarization of the heart. Let us pray. Almighty and gracious God, help us to get at the heart your goodness, love, kindness, and mercy, that we would be people who are not turned in on ourselves, who are not polarized against our neighbor, but are drawn to a neighbor, so that we would welcome them who are different than us, Lord, at this meal, transform us, nourish us, strengthen us, so that through your broken body we may become united, through your poured out blood we may have life. Nourish us now. In Christ's name, amen.